1: Lovely. Here we go. (laughs) Lovely. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Really striving
0: for innovation, striving for something different. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. A DJ is that person whose work and play is completely and utterly at one. It's like I'm playing an instrument, making two songs become one. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a
1: box of 45. You can only do that if you watch the crowd and take a lot of things in perspective.
0: And here with me, a DJ who got into pop music at the fairground.
1: And you have huge sound systems spitting very loud music. (laughs) Why do you think I became a DJ?
0: (laughs) A DJ who left France and found himself in Manchester.
1: And then this is where I was basically spreading tapes everywhere, I was recording sets, I already had decks and stuff. And then I met a guy who used to work as a light guy at the Hacienda.
0: And a DJ whose life is now a film.
1: My dream was to do something in the music business. If this Legion of Honor can show anybody who's young today that when you do believe in your dreams, sometimes you can get somewhere and you can actually do it, well, it's a good thing. And I've kind of Prove my point.
0: Laurent Garnier. Hello. Bonjour. Bonjour. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about first getting into music. How old were you and what were you into?
1: Oh, that far.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that far.
1: You know what? I was not that different than now because I liked music. It's kind of funny because when I was younger, you kind of had to decide which kind of people you were going to hang out with. either you would hang out with the funk boys or you would hang out with the people who would listen to ACDC and kind of metal and rock and roll. Either you would hang out with people listening to reggae, ska and mods and stuff like that, or you would hang out with the people listening to Rockabilly. And the funny thing is I was everywhere. (laughs) I felt good with everybody because I did like listening to funk as well as Crazy Cavan or whatever. And I felt good within everybody. So um, while my friends were going to play football and stuff, I was spending hours in my bedroom listening to music, uh, stealing my dad's records, stealing my big brother's records, and recording radio shows. Back then, it was the explosion of free radio in France, late 70s and early 80s. All sorts of new programs were coming on the radio, And they were playing a lot of imports and a lot of records you could not find. So it was a a very vibrant time for music. And I was kind of spending my time with um, my tape recorder and recording music from everywhere. And I still have all those tapes here.
0: So this was like an early obsession with the way that music was made, I'm thinking.
1: You know, the fashion back then were not really allowing you to be part of different clans. (laughs) So I guess the radio shows were stylized in the same way. You know, if somebody was playing imports, they were only playing disco and funk. And then after that, you had a show which was only playing punk. And even the punks were not playing other styles of rock music. It was quite strict back then. They didn't have a social network or internet where today you can feed yourself with so much more. It's so easy now to know more about music. Back then, everybody wanted to be a bit specialized in one thing. It was kind of their way to exist and to belong to some kind of a social group. But again, you know, um, I did not feel comfortable hanging with just one group because the music from the other groups was exciting me as well.
0: In the brilliant new film about your life off the record. There are references to your grandparents being fairground people and your early exposure to popular music being at the fairground.
1: Yeah, I was very young when my dad had uh, bumper cars, but he actually stopped working in fairground when I was six or seven. But he still kept, because my uncle carried on the fairgrounds and because my grandfather was such an important person in the fairground world back then. And the boss at the moment now is a man called Marcel Campion, And the man before that was my grandfather.
0: And the loud music that was played at Fairgrounds, it was all contemporary pop, I guess.
1: It was more than contemporary pop. It was like very upfront music because fairground people used to have places where they were buying records. It was some kind of a special shop for fairground people because back then they were selling so much records. They were in direct contact with record companies. So they had the best hits and they had all the music up front because, of course, it was a place where music is played loud, where young people go and socialize and kiss and talk and do whatever they do. And, of course, the music had a very strong impact on the youth.
0: Yeah, and for you, I'm guessing that the new music and the rush of the fairground may have been the foundation for what you've gone on to do.
1: Oh, it's very clear. I've been to fairgrounds since i'm a baby following my parents until i was 12 13 i was going on my own with my brother and apart from the thrill that a ride can give you my biggest memories are loud sound system and records that were playing special records and i can i can even remember some tracks that i discovered on some rides when i was that age, you know, 12, 13, 10, 11, whatever. Like the first time I heard Upside Down by Dinah Ross, stuff like that. Of course, being somewhere where it's exciting and there's flashing lights. Disco balls and and you have huge sound systems spitting very loud music. Why do you think I became a DJ? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which other songs do you remember from those times?
1: A lot of disco stuff. Uh, Patrick Hernandez. Do you know? Do you remember that? Born to be alive. Yes. A band called Lime and they had a hit called Your Love. I remember BB and the Q band. I remember it was a silver seven inch and I heard it in the background and it drove me crazy stuff like Shalamar, a lot of disco stuff.
0: And when did you first go to nightclubs?
1: I went to the first place where you could go and dance, where the purpose was to go and dance. It was in Italy with my parents, and I must have been eight. And it was not a nightclub, it was dancing. So they had an orchestra playing modern music, not playing old school music, playing all modern music. And because the boss of that place were friends of my parents i've been there a lot since my youth and then the first time in a club i must have been 12 with either my parents or my brother wow and since that age yeah you never (laughs) stopped i was hooked i was hooked
0: your career as a dj actually started in the uk didn't it what brought you to the UK and specifically to Manchester?
1: I did two years of catering school from 16 till 18, 82 to 84. And so to be kind of successful in catering in France, you need to speak English. So when I left catering school, straight away, I got a a place to work at the French embassy in London, where one of the pupil from catering school was actually leaving uh, the embassy. So he left me his job. And because... The French Embassy had very strong connection with the catering school. I went there and I stayed in London at the French Embassy for a year and a half, nearly two years, knowing that I was working every day and I was going out every single night. So this is where I was going to mod clubs and all sorts of 1960s nights in Camden Town and then going to more new wave and that kind of club. I, I was basically going to all sorts of different clubs, listening to all sorts of different kind of music. And it was the beginning as well of warehouse parties uh, where they were playing a lot of go-go's and early hip hop and stuff like that. And then back in 86, I had a girlfriend who her sister had a restaurant in Manchester and they offered us a really good job. So we left London to go to Manchester to carry on working in catering. And then this is where I was basically spreading tapes everywhere. I was recording sets. I already had decks and stuff. And I was always, since the age of 10, I've been giving tapes to people. So I was, you know, doing my casual stuff, doing tapes and spreading them out. And then I met a guy called Danny who used to work as a light guy at the Hacienda. And then the tape I gave him ended in the right hand at the right time. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's a funny story.
0: Okay, Laurent, time now for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record books. All the questions are on 45, Steve's. I'll dip in, you just say
1: when. Clack, 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 stop.
0: Is making music harder than playing it?
1: It's very different. It's two completely different things. For me, when I DJ, my task is to... Try to create some kind of an atmosphere which hopefully will become special. Where if I find the right way to play the right record at the right time, the thing will switch and it will become magical. And you can only do that if you watch the crowd and take a lot of things in perspective time, sound system, the mood, the lights. Every little things counts, you know, and I look at the time very much and I know that there's some records you can't really play um, at 12 o'clock, you know, and it's better to play them later and vice versa. So our task as DJs is to look at people. We're not here to impose anything. Of course, we're here to play the music we love, but we kind of redefine the story every night to find the way to grab the crowd and try to make the night extremely special so they can go home and perhaps, if you're lucky, remember that night forever. We all have memories of amazing nights where, because of one record played at one special moment, it switched the whole room. Mm-hmm. This is our task as DJs.
0: Dave hastham Laurent, says that DJs and crowds are on an adventure together he said that on series 1 of this podcast of course you agree with that yeah
1: but totally 100% i mean i always see myself when i dj as like okay take it like a train all right there's a locomotive and then there's a there's a wagon behind the locomotive is supposed to pull the wagon and start to bring the wagon going on a journey so i always start my job in the locomotive putting fuel And then once I feel like we're on the the nice kind of fast pulse or a good pulse, I can jump then from the locomotive to the wagon with the people. And then it became like a journey together. And if you don't look at your crowd, if you're not ready to not compromise, but have a relationship with your crowd, it doesn't work. That's the thing of DJing, producing music. It's completely different. You don't have to make music for other people. The first person you have to please is yourself. You don't have to copy anybody because at the end of the day, you don't even have to release it. And I think the best albums or the best producers are always the one that have a real personality. You know, when I make music, I usually think of an empty club and what time I would play the track I'm making, but I never think that, oh, this is gonna please the crowd. For me, it's a completely different journey. A DJ set is in the moment, it's instant. You make it, and then after the memories are there, but then it's gone. That's it, it's past. When you make music, you can come back to it on and on and on. And sometimes you you don't even feel like it's ever finished. But For me, the main purpose of making music is to please yourself. So it's much more of a journey than something where you think about sharing it first. It's very different. And before, I would have said, for me, DJing is much easier. And I take far more pleasure because it's something where I share something with the crowd and it brings me a lot of emotions and it brings me a lot of joy. But lately, funnily enough... Working on a lot of different projects since the COVID, working on a rock and roll project with a French band and working on a film and then working back on some tracks, more personal tracks for me, it kind of helped me to enjoy more the, the studio side. And I think I've learned a lot for the last year and a half about studio, about mixing, about making music. And I learned a lot about me, my role as a musician in the studio. So It's been very interesting. I like both, but I think my heart, since I'm a young man, is DJing still.
0: Back into the box then, Laura, for your second question. Say when. Sorry, it was a very long answer. It was a great and very inspiring answer.
1: It needed to be a long answer. For sure. (laughs) Okay, clack, 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 go, 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 stop. (laughs) I can't see anything. I don't know where you're at. (laughs) Is your life normal? Uh, Yes and no. Absolute, 100% yes, because I wake up early in the morning, my wife works, I wake up at 6.30 in the morning to drive my kid to school, I go and buy my stuff at the supermarkets, I don't fly in business class or anything like that. I've never been bothered in the street or stopped in the street, you know, sometimes some people would recognize me and say, oh, we love what you do, but not to an extent where it's becoming a bit weird for my family and for myself. So to that extent, I walk my dogs. I have a very normal life because I do exactly the same as everybody else, except when I go on a plane and I go and DJ for a gig, because saying that my life is 100% normal when at my age, I still go travel the world, play music as a job is already something that could seem a bit weird, You know, I live in a countryside and and we have friends which are farmers and works in wine or do all sorts of different kinds of jobs, normal jobs. And sometimes if you go to a party and you meet other people from that circle that don't know who you are, it's a bit difficult to say, well, you know, when they ask you, what do you do for a living? And you go, I'm a DJ. (laughs) And they look at you thinking, he's 55, his son is nearly 18. Is it really responsible to be a DJ <laughs> at this age with a kid who's 18 who goes to school? I mean, is this a good example for his kid, you know? And it's true. Sometimes I'm like, um, I'm a musician. I make music. Sometimes I'm, I'm like, I'm scared to say I'm DJing, which is really silly. You know, I mean, I shouldn't be ashamed of anything. <laughs> but yeah, I would say 80% of my life is completely normal. But the 20% when I DJ, because I don't do that many dates a year. I basically do three dates a month, no more than that, because I've decided a long time ago that I wanted to as well have time to do other things, to do other projects. So I would say 20% of my life, no, it's not normal because uh, I get taken to great restaurants, I meet wonderful people, passionate people about the same passion that you know I share. I get to play the music I love uh, as a job. I mean, come on, that's brilliant. And I travel everywhere. I mean, I know that's not normal. And I go to bed at six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning when people wake up to go and work in normal job. So there's a contrast in my life. So it's a 2080, let's say that.
0: A normal life, but with this weird sort of nighttime job that you've got.
1: (laughs) With this twist, with a lovely twist. How (laughs) to DJ with Chris Hawkins.
0: Still to come.
1: How the hell can you plan your set? What's the point of planning your set? You never know who's gonna be in front of you. How can I feel anything else than happy? I've dreamed of something I would have never thought I could touch when I was a kid.
0: Back into the box, Lauren, for your third question. You tell me
1: where. Go on. Go, 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 stop.
0: Where's the greatest place you've ever DJ'd?
1: Very difficult question. If I could pinpoint one night, it would be, it would be really sad because that would mean I would miss that and I would try to search for that emotion again. I'm very lucky because a long time ago, I decided to do less, but better. And I started to carry on working with the people I was working with saying, we are going to choose where we're going. We don't do that for the money. We do that for pleasure. They say we, we should always remember this is the first thing for us. It's the pleasure. So. I get to come back to places I love playing at and I get to work with people I love working with. So I've been extremely lucky because a lot of clubs or festivals where I absolutely adore DJing. So pinpointing one would be very difficult because if I say now um, the Rex Club in Paris or I would say uh, the Grele Forelle In Vienna, which are two clubs I absolutely love playing at, I would forget about Panorama Bar. I would forget about this other club in Munich I love playing at, or or this other place in in Kiev. Because again, I'm lucky because I get to choose to go to these places. But there's two places I'm missing very, very, very much. One is the end in London, because I had a very special uh, relationship with Leo with Liam and and all the crew used to work the end. And that team was amazing. And that's why they made such an amazing club.
0: There were some of the best nights of my life were spent there.
1: Well, I think it's a lot of us who had some of the best nights of our lives. And there's definitely, if I had to do a, a top five, the end would be there, definitely. And the other place I'm missing more than anything is Yellow in Tokyo. And funny enough, I got to play for the last night at the end, and I was lucky enough to play for the last weekend at the Yellow, where I think between me and François Kevokian, we must have been playing 36 hours. We could not stop, and and the party started Friday, and we closed it Monday afternoon. (laughs) It was absolutely mental people were crying and we got to stop and carry on again and stop and do speech and we had to carry on I mean it would never stop it was a very emotional night but then again you know uh, same with festivals like Time Warp you know under the dome where we have very very special moments there same with festivals like Nuit Sonore in Lyon or even Le Sucre which is a more recent club in Lyon There's so many. There's so many. I'm sorry there's so many. And maybe the best is still to come. Okay, that would be good. But even if I stay on the level where I'm at, I'll be very happy. (laughs) I'll be a happy man. Let's keep that. (laughs) I mean, I'm very lucky because I have um, a following that is very, um, we have a very good word in French saying bienveillant, which means they mean well. They look after you well and they're very uh, friendly. My fan base is like that. I have a very nice relationship with um, the fans or, you know, the people who follow me.
0: You're so modest. Back into the box.
1: No, it's true. It's true.
0: Question four, you say when?
1: Question four, question four, Where Now.
0: (laughs) How does being a DJ make you feel?
1: Amazing, because it's been my dream since I'm a young kid. You know, we were talking about the documentary before. The documentary opens with me saying for an interview for, um, I can't remember uh, which American magazine, but I think it was a billboard. And I say, I was a fan of punk. I was a fan of reggae. I was a fan of disco. I was a fan of soul. And for me, when House Music came, it was the essence of all this put together. And then at the end of the documentary, we um, take back that sentence, followed by showing um, the day I got the um, the Legion of Honor in France. And I was talking about the Legion of Honor saying, if my Legion of Honor can show any kid today that I was dreaming to be a DJ when I was 10, because music, all sorts of music, was giving me so much pleasure. And I felt so much together with the music. And I felt that I had to be involved somewhere around the music world to be able to share it with other people. My dream was to do something in the music business if this legion of honor can show anybody who's young today that when you do believe in your dreams, sometimes you can get somewhere and you can actually do it, well, it's a good thing. And I've kind of proved my point. Do, do you know what I mean? Is, is it any clear what I'm saying?
0: Absolutely <laughs> clear. Yeah, it's amazing what you're saying.
1: How can I feel anything else than happy and fulfilled? Because uh, I've dreamed of something I would have never thought I could touch. When I was a kid, it was clubbing. I mean, you got to understand, my brother was six years older than me. So when I was 10, my brother was 16 or 17. He was starting to go out in clubs. And I was looking at him like he was living a life that I could not have never dreamed for. And I was all the time saying to him, bring me magazines about clubs. I want to see pictures. I want to know. I want to know what you're listening to. He thought I was mad. You know, it was difficult to get information. So everything I could grab to see a picture about people someone dancing in a club or knowing about this disco band who's been playing in this club in Paris or that club I was so much into it so nightlife was a complete how can i say dream for me you know it was the the tower of babel or something like that <laughs> and then 10 years after somebody offers me a guest spot at the hacienda <laughs> and then you think wow, how did that happen? And then 10 years after that, I'm like becoming an important DJ in France. And funny enough, four years after that, I'm still there and I'm still in the music business and and I have people following my music. I mean, come on, how else can I feel?
0: Tell me, Laura, like, can you possibly describe when it's going great on a night? You know what, how's your head? What are you feeling?
1: You need to be very well surrounded to keep your head, it can really destabilize you because from one day to the other, people will want to be with you. People will want to shag you. People will want to offer you all sorts of different things. From nobody you go to, you know, everybody loves you. Everybody cheers. And it can really be very destabilizing. If if you haven't got a strong surrounding around you, that keeps your feet on the ground
0: you kept your head
1: i have because because it arrived quite slowly with me and in a much slower thing than the person that makes one track which becomes an instant hit i mean i didn't make my first record for the first five years and the first record who was successful was a few years after that but even though it was not absolutely huge i think my biggest record must have been man with a red face and from the day I DJed my first time at Hacienda and Man with a Red Face, there's a, <laughs> nearly a 15-year gap. I grew up in this business with everybody else that grew up in this business because I was there at the beginning of house music and we all kind of shared the same story. Do you know what I mean? I didn't come 10 years after and, and made it... A journey together. Exactly. So... A lot of the oldest DJs, if you take Carl, uh, Cox, if you take Jeff, Zven, or people like that who've been there in different countries since the beginning, all these people, I know they're big guys, but they're still, you know, compared to some newer ones, they're still quite humble.
0: I think that there are very few more humble than you, you know. It all makes sense, I guess, listening to the way things started for you, the way that you've handled yourself. Mm. It kind of all makes sense. I've got one last question here then from the box. You say when? (laughs) Now. Have you ever cleared a dance floor? I have. Oh, really?
1: Of course I have. We all must have done at some point in our life. A
0: heart-sinking
1: moment for you? Yes, because I do care. If it would have been a normal night, let's say a techno night, and I would have cleared the dance floor with a techno record, it would have hurt me a lot more. But because it was a night that was announced that I was going to play funk and soul, and it was a time where um, people were not really reading flyers properly, Actually, I've got two stories for you. This one is uh, a festival says, Laurent, we want you to come and play and we want to do something a little bit different this year. We'd like you to play a different set. And I said, okay, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to do punk rock? Do you want to do funk soul? Because, you know, I, I can do that and it'll be fun. You know, I think it's interesting for people. And they go, Oh yeah, funk soul, really good. And I said to them, be careful, be very clear and very specific about the style of music I will play because I can be my own enemy. If you put my name on a flyer, a lot of people will assume that I will play techno. And back then, it was not a time where I was doing other sets. So I went to this festival knowing that I was going to play funk and so I had no techno records with me. And it was really mentioned on the flyer. In big red dots, it was mentioned special funk and soul. Within three records, we went from 2,000 to four people. <laughs> I had a room packed of people who did not believe I was going to play something else. They thought I was never going to do it. I was going to play one track and then perhaps switch to techno. And it was a big shock for them. (laughs) It was a big moment of loneliness, let me say.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's probably an understatement.
1: (laughs) And the second one, uh, which is a bit weirder, but a funny story, is when I last played at this festival in Los Angeles. You know the huge festival in Los Angeles? Um, uh, what's it called? Um, the biggest one in LA. Uh, um, Next to LA. Uh, uh, Coachella. Yeah. When you play Coachella, you need to do two weekends. I had to do two Sundays, I think. And both times I had to play after Maceo Plex. And the first Sunday I get there, I must admit, the welcoming and The artist reception was absolutely appalling, but we're used to that in America. And uh, when I finally get to my room, the room is packed with 6,000 people. Maceo Plex is like killing the room. The vibe is huge. It's really exciting. And I feel like the guy on stage is a bit nervous. So he kind of clears the stage. And I said to him, no, but I'm playing in 10 minutes. He goes, I don't care. You get out of stage. He was like very nervous. And anyway, you know, I felt the whole thing was a bit strange, but anyway. I come back 10 minutes after, I play my first record, and within, let's say, 10, 15 minutes, the room was empty. I went from (laughs) 6,000 to 60 people. I don't know why. And then the week after, I get there, same time, Maceo Plex was playing. The room was empty when Maceo Plex was playing. And within 20 minutes, I started my set, the room was packed again.
0: How do you explain that?
1: Would you please explain to me what the (laughs) fuck happened, man? I'd love to know.
0: Laurent, uh, they were your five questions from the box, but I've got three quick fires here. Yeah. Just three quick fire questions. Is that okay? Do you plan your sets?
1: Never. How the hell can you plan your set? What's the point of planning your set? You never know who's going to be in front of you. And as I was saying to you before, each night is different and you're there to catch the mood. So if you plan your sets, the only thing I do sometimes is, okay, how can I start tonight? Which will be my first record? Yeah. And usually, if I ever get to that, usually it's the wrong track. So I would say uh, nine out of ten times, I don't even think about my first track. I actually always go there half an hour, 45 minutes before I play. I listen to the person before me. And it's a good time for me to think, okay, how can I start after this? Should I follow him? Should I change? You know, should I carry on? Should I make a break? Is this crowd tired? Are they overexcited? Or maybe do they need a little kick? Again, each night is different. You can't plan your sets. Our job is to tell a new story every night. I mean, how boring for a fan who follows you in two different towns, Sometimes you have fans who follow you. How boring and disrespectful for that fan to play the same sets Friday and Saturday. I think it's appalling to do that. So no, I never plan my sets, no.
0: Quite a firm answer there.
1: Uh, Do you have a DJ hero, Laurent? I have tons. I must say the the first time I heard Derek back late 88, 89 in Manchester, he, he blew me away. Then people like, DJ Deep. I love Charles Peterson. I love them all for very different reasons. But every time I go and listen to Giles, his selection is beautiful and I love the way he dares to play music. Sometimes I would be scared to play and I love going to watch Jeff Mills because he's always a great performance. Oh, Kerry Chandler, Joe Closier, I love. Yes, of course, I have DJs I go and absolutely adore to go and listen to. Yes. Luckily, I have people I can look up on and go, ooh, I'd like to play like he does.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, one day, (laughs) one day. (laughs) And finally, this is a nerdy one. What's your tech of choice?
1: I'm not a tech person at all.
0: That's strange to hear you say that.
1: Yeah, why?
0: Well, because I would have thought that everything has to be just so.
1: No, I can't call myself a tech person. Because, I mean, when it comes down to DJing, I'm very basic. I I go with two CDJs from Pioneer and a Pioneer mixer. I can't call that tech. I call that the the, the normal gear. Either you take a a Zone or you take a Pioneer. I'm a Pioneer guy. I love Pioneer. So I go with Pioneer because I like the sound. I like what I can do with it. Apart from that, I don't use effects or anything like that. When I DJ, I'm pretty basic and old school for that. And then when it comes to studio, I haven't really bought gear for a long time. I mean, sometimes, yeah, I would I would buy a keyboard or I would buy a plug-in, but I am not somebody who reads about all the new stuff because I've been a lousy sound engineer for years. I'm still learning now uh, with the people I work with, but I'm not a tech guy. I'm not the guy who's going to buy the new iPhone or the new TV. I could not give a shit <laughs> because I'm so not a tech guy. I'm not.
0: One very last question now for you, Laurent. It's the end of the world, and you have to play the last three records on Earth. Right now, this answer might change if I asked you tomorrow, say, but what would those three records be?
1: Well, I'm sorry. I'm going to be very, very classic. And, of course, not very surprising, I guess. But if it had to be my last three, to make people dance or not? Yeah, I think so. Oh, fuck it. I would play I Feel Love divina don't you want it mind you it'd be a bit ironic to play don't you want it when you know two minutes after it's going to be the end of the world <laughs> <laughs> and then and then perhaps world to world by underground resistance and then that's it goodbye switch off
0: <laughs> god that
1: would be weird Lauren, I can't <laughs> thank
0: you enough. Uh, this has been a, an amazing experience to have this time with you. Thank you so, so much, uh, Lauren Garnier. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.